How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can take have the opportunity to uh, uh, make sure we're in fellowship, make sure we're ready to concentrate and study, and that God the Holy Spirit can use what we study tonight to uh, our benefit and our own spiritual growth. So let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, it's a tremendous privilege that we have to study your word. We live in an era today when there is so much available to us in terms of the truth of your word, in terms of uh, tools for Bible study, uh, pastors teaching the truth whose messages are available through various electronic means. And yet, Father, so often there are so many who just allow the all of the uh, details of life, all of the things that can distract us to keep us from gathering together and meeting together as a body of believers and how important that dynamic is as we fellowship together around the teaching of your word. For it is your word that will not go forth void, and it is your word where there is real power in terms of transforming our thinking and transforming our lives. And Father, as we continue our study, we pray that uh, tonight as we come to a conclusion of this segment of our study that we will be able to see the significance of this and, and how it fits within what we've been studying in, uh, in our study of Hebrews. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, for the last, I don't know how long it's been, a good 10 or 12 lessons, which is probably closer to three months, we've been on a little bit of a diversion in studying the whole doctrine of the new covenant and how important that is. And we use the uh, references to the New Covenant every uh, every month when we celebrate the Lord's Table. We talk about Jesus' statement at the Last Supper that this is the New Covenant of my blood which is given for you. We talk about the fact that uh, in many contexts, talk about how the New Covenant's been established and how, based on 2 Corinthians, that, we, that Paul said we're ministers of the New Covenant. But what does that mean? And somehow we think that that we live in the era of the New Covenant simply because as we look at Scripture, we see that the Scripture is divided into two parts. We usually refer to them as Old Testament and New Testament, but literally they are identified as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So this really draws this distinction between the two. And in the history of doctrine, in the history of theology, there have been a variety of different interpretations as to just exactly what the new covenant was or is when it came into effect and what its implications are for the church age. And a lot of those issues relate to ultimate eschatological framework, whether or not you're post-mill, ah-mill, or premillennial. And among those who are premillennial, there are different views among those who are dispensational, even among those who are traditional, what we would call traditional or classic dispensationalist, which would be the uh, Schofield, Chafer, 
Walverd, Ryrie uh, school of dispensationalism, that, there, that even those men have held to different positions. So this is not something that has always been clear, but thankfully, because of what these men have studied and worked through, then we can we can come to some really good conclusions as to just exactly what the New Covenant is. And last week and this week, I took the opportunity, as I've been going through this study, to pull out and go through some different articles on the New Covenant that I have and some different things written by some some different people. And I just was, and I hadn't read him in a long time. And and I'm at a point now where I never know where I ever learned anything anymore because I've just heard it from so many different people. But I went back in, in the late 90s, Dwight Pentecost uh, published, I think that it was about his last new significant book that came out on the, king, on the kingdom. And as I read his chapter on the New Covenant, I thought, well, I can't find a hair's worth of difference between my view of the New Covenant and Pentecost's view of the New Covenant. And that's, a, that's probably a good thing. But what I'm saying is some things I've done, I've expanded our understanding a little bit, especially when it comes to understanding this whole concept of regeneration as it has been applied to the New Covenant, what that means, but also just trying to bring a little more precision into some areas of the study. And in doing that, we went back through all of the Old Testament passages that are used to reference the New Covenant and the New Covenant to Israel. We looked at passages in Hosea and then Isaiah and then Jeremiah, the key passage in Jeremiah 31, which is the one that's quoted here in Hebrews 8, uh, 6 through 8, which is where we are, are studying in our study of Hebrews, and then on into uh, other uh, citations in Amos last week, Hosea chapter 2, and uh, Joel, excuse me, Joel chapter 2, and how Joel 2 is quoted in Acts 2. And last, last week I, I felt a little rushed at the end, but I wanted to connect the Joel 2 passage to Acts 2 because that is such a, just how that is handled. In fact, one of the things that, you know, sometimes I think I just probably end up doing too much, but sometimes the Lord just dumps stuff on me. Uh, and I had not announced this here, but, uh, and some of you would know this man, but the theology professor that Chafer Seminaries had, Dr. John Beck, who's done an excellent job teaching theology for Chafer Seminary for uh, probably the last 12 or 14 years, uh, 67 years old, and almost two weeks ago he had a serious stroke, and then he went to be with the Lord, I think it was a week ago on Tuesday, this last Tuesday. And so he was uh, directing about uh, studies on, I think, four or five different courses, one of which was a course on dispensationalism, and um, I ended up getting the nod to pick up that course and continuing uh, the work on that, which isn't an exceptionally heavy load because there's only three students working through material that I'm pretty familiar with. But one of the students emailed me a question today and said, you know, I've read these three books now on uh, Ryrie's book on dispensationalism and this couple other books, and I'm still not really sure what the difference is between progressive dispensationalism and classic dispensationalism. And so I've kind of had that floating around the back of my head today. But one of the key issues in this debate between the two 
in terms of the interpretation of Scripture has to do with understanding just what Peter meant there in Acts 2 when he said this is what the prophet Joel spoke about and how we understand that prophecy. And I've gone through that when we went back in, I think it was earlier in the fall, we looked at the four different ways in which New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, one of which is where there, it's just a matter of application that there may be five or six different characteristics of the Old Testament event or prophecy and five or six different characteristics of the New Testament event or prophecy, and there's only one thing that's, that they've got in common. And that's what the New Testament writer is saying. And often we look at it whenever it says this is what the pro- this fulfills the prophet statement. We think that it's one-to-one historical or prophetical correspondence, like the Micah 5:2 prophecy that said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and he's literally born in Bethlehem. But sometimes, and frequently, Old Testament passages are cited as comparison or analogy, or this is like that, and that. And how you take that will affect a lot of your interpretation of the rest of the New Testament. And so we spent time on that, and I made that connection last time between Joel 2. We looked at the Acts 2 quotation there when Peter says this. When he's talking about the uh, uh, apostles speaking in tongues there, speaking in languages and uh, on the day of Pentecost, that this is simply something he was saying was similar to the kind of manifestations of the Holy Spirit that were prophesied by the prophet Joel in relation to the last uh, of the uh, last events prior to the day of the Lord, which is at the end of the uh, tribulation period. And then I connected that to Romans chapter 10, a passage that is one that people get very confused about, the passage that is often misquoted and misused in numerous uh, evangelistic settings, the passage that says that if we, I want to quote it correctly in Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And there are a number of different ways in which uh, good men interpret this verse and handle this verse <clears throat> that I think um, uh, attempt to deal with the context to some degree and at least recognize that this verse is not saying you have to do two things to be saved. Number one, believe, and number two, make a public confession of your faith. Uh, many people reject that, but they still come up with two or three different ideas. And I have taught some different interpretations of this as I've wrestled with it but where I have been for at least the last 10 years is an understanding of the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is dealing with the relationship of the current status of Israel as unsaved in relationship to the righteous demands of God. And the whole book of Rome, the whole epistle of the Romans is written to show the necessity of, of God's righteousness being kept, uh, uh, the integrity of God's righteousness being kept uh, uh, inviolate. And so that's why there's this reference here, believing unto righteousness because of what is said in the first uh, two or three verses of that chapter. But the quotation there again is a quotation that comes out of Job 2, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord uh, shall be saved. 
and this is such an important concept to understand this, because as soon as Americans, who have been so uh, trained in revivalistic terminology coming out of the early 19th century, that as soon as you see the word saved, you think in terms of phase one, salvation, and, uh, and these being saved from the penalty of sin, which we would call justification salvation. But if saved here, which is the Greek word sozo, refers to justification salvation, in my opinion, this is the first time in the book of Romans that it refers to justification salvation. Paul usually uses the word sozo in uh, um, uh, Romans to refer to phase three glorification or physical deliverance. He never uses it as a synonym for justification because he has uh, three chapters on justification, and he doesn't want to get people confused on the terminology. James is the same way. James, when you get to James 2, and it talks about what's the relationship of uh, faith to works, and uh, <clears throat> someone has faith but not works, can that faith save him? When he uses that phrase, can that faith save him, he's not talking using fa- save there as justification salvation. He's talking about phase 2 salvation. So we have to be very careful not to make... Uh, knee-jerk uh, interpretation just because we see the word saved that it means uh, being saved from eternal condemnation and receiving eternal life. And the quote from Joel 2 in uh, Romans 10.13, as I pointed out last time, gives us an interpretive key for this, this passage that it's not talking about justification salvation because the time when the Jews will call on the name of the Lord to be saved, according to Joel 2, is what happens when they have escaped to the area around modern Petra or Basra, that area over in uh, uh, across the Dead Sea, where they flee during the tribulation. We studied those passages on Sunday morning in uh, Revelation 11, Revelation 12, where the woman who is Israel flees into the wilderness and is protected by God for 1,200 and uh, 30 days there, which is that, that three-and-a-half-year period during the, during the tribulation. And so it's at the end of that period they call upon the Lord to be physically delivered. And if you understand physical deliverance there, and this is the ultimate physical deliverance of Israel, that fits the context of what Paul is talking about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that there is a remnant, but eventually there will be deliverance for for Israel, and so uh, this is exactly what happens. And, and I pointed this out last time. Went to Romans 11, and this shows the ultimate deliverance of Israel, and uh, that's covered in Romans 11, uh, 25 and 26. That in this manner, all Israel will be saved. And the manner is described in the second half of uh, verse 26, which is a quote from Isaiah 59. 20, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is when that new covenant is established with uh, with Israel. Now, if you turn with me from Romans 11 back to Isaiah chapter 60, remember that quote comes out of Isaiah 59 and there's a, a whole... Um, connection there between how, what, God is, what God is doing. 
and the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 59 describes this deliverance from God that in Isaiah 59 talking about how their iniquities have separated them from God, your sins have hidden from him so that he will not hear. And then it continues to identify the causes of their condemnation in the latter part of that that section down through verse 8. And then uh, verse 9, there's justice is far from us, righteousness does not overtake us. Uh, they're groping for truth, verse 10, and their transgressions are multiplying, verse 12 and 13, indicating that they are far from uh, salvation. And then starting in the second half of 15 and 16 talks about uh, their Redeemer who will come and will, uh, will redeem them. And how he will come to Zion, in verse 20 we read, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. And verse 21, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore, indicating that that is clearly a new, new covenant passage. And the uh, chapter 60 then will describe how the Messiah is going to come and and the Messiah is going to come and deliver them in that chapter, and 61 relates to the uh, Millennial Kingdom. So all of this connects these things together. So what I wanted to do tonight, before we wrap up with our final look at a couple of New Testament passages, is to go through a very quick summary of what we studied in terms of the New Covenant This is the so we're just we're going to start the summary and I've got 18 points. So we're going to fly through these because they're very familiar to you, but I want to pull it together uh, for you so you don't um, so you don't forget this. And it's not just a bunch of loose ends. First point. The covenant was made with the nation Israel. It's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It is not made with uh, the church. It is not made with the Gentiles. It is a covenant that is specifically said to be made only with Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31 is the main passage. It's quoted the same way in Hebrews 8, 8. Other passages that confirm this are in Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, which I just mentioned, uh, 61, 8 through 9, Jeremiah 32, 37 to 40, uh, 50, uh, 4 through 5, and Ezekiel 16, uh, 60 to 63. All these passages are those that we have gone through in detail in the past few weeks. So it is a covenant that is with Israel and Judah. Second point, the co- this covenant is in contrast to the Mosaic covenant. This is the main point of the writer's quotation in Hebrews, that it is uh, it replaces the old covenant. And because it's called the new covenant, 
The point is that the old covenant has been uh, has been replaced and was always seen to be a temporary covenant. It wasn't a long term or a or an eternal covenant. So the covenant is in contrast to the Mosaic covenant, which depended on the obedience of Israel for its fulfillment. But the point is that Israel could not fulfill that. They could not be obedient. So God is going to give them a new heart and a new mind with this covenant that will enable them to finally be obedient. And only as obedient people can they enjoy the blessings that God had promised them in in the Mosaic covenant. Third point is the covenant will be fulfilled after the great tribulation. It, it doesn't come into effect until Jesus Christ returns and delivers the people and they are established, Genesis 30, verse 7. It's not in effect now. It is a, the new covenant with Israel and Judah does not go into effect until the end of the tribulation. But if you have it in effect now, then you've got, you have to have kingdom realities in operational in the church age. And that's what really separates our view from either the progressive dispensational view, because they see this already not yet view of the kingdom. It's sort of partially here and partially not. So we have certain uh, manifestations of the kingdom today, and it's progressively coming in. That's where they got the term progressive dispensationalism, or amillennialism, which just says we're in a spiritual form of the kingdom. Well, if we're in the millennial kingdom in any way, shape, or form, then I don't know about you, but I haven't seen too many lions lying down with lambs, too many children putting their uh, uh, hands into uh, cobra's dens or anything of that nature. So that led to another observation as we studied these things, point number four, that the new covenant necessitates a restoration of the Jews to the land. In Jeremiah 32, 37, 33, 11, Ezekiel 11, 17, 36, 37, all these passages point to Israel being back in the land at the time the new covenant goes into effect. And it is a permanent return to the land in obedience. So they will be restored to the land, not as an apostate nation, but as an obedient nation. And therefore, none of these passages that talk about a return could relate to that return from Babylon that occurred around 538, 537 B.C. Fifth observation. During the tribulation, many Jews will be saved, including the 144,000 and those in Jerusalem that are saved in Revelation 11.11. Now, that is an interesting passage. As I pointed out before, there's the earthquake that occurs after the two witnesses go up to heaven. And there's an earthquake, and it says 7,000 are killed, and all the rest give glory to the God of heaven. That's a lot of all the rest people. And the the view that most people have of the tribulation is this is a time when massive numbers of unbelievers die and there that and the caricature that you get from the covenant camp and the caricature you get from anybody's anti-dispensational is we just want to kill everybody and God is just this harsh evil God killing all of humanity in the tribulation period. But what you find, and I'll be pointing out as we go through Revelation, is just just the enormous number of people that are saved in the uh, period of the tribulation. 
For example, and we'll spend some time on this when we get there, but in the seal judgments, in the fourth or in the fifth seal judgment in Revelation chapter six, there is this picture that 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 John has of an altar in heaven, and underneath the altar are all these souls that have been slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held, and they cry out to God, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge how long will it be? until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And God basically says, you got to wait a while. And then in chapter 7, after the 144,000 are saved, and as we'll see, the events in chapter 7 take place in heaven at the same time the seal judgments are going on on the earth, and answer the question, how can anybody survive these seal judgments? There's a fascinating passage in uh, Revelation 7, 9, where John writes... After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. How many are there? These are the martyrs. These are not church-age believers or believers of all time, because Old Testament saints haven't been resurrected yet. Church-age believers are already uh, raptured and rewarded. These are the ones who come out from the... Uh, tribulation. These are the mort- martyrs. How many are there? They're without number. Now that doesn't just mean a big, big number because if you look a couple of chapters later in Revelation 9, when you come to the sixth trumpet judgment, there's 200 million, a 200 million demon army that is released from under the Euphrates. Now 200 million is a whole lot, but it's not a number that no one can count because you can count up to 200 million. So we know that 200 million is a number that is smaller contextually than the, those who are saved who are so many that you can't count the number. So that tells you, just by the way John uses numbers in Revelation, that the number of martyrs that get saved out of the tribulation are beyond 200 million. That's a whole lot of folks that are going to receive the grace of God and the mercy, benefit from the mercy of God during the tribulation period. So during the tribulation, many, many Jews are going to be saved, not just the 144,000 and not just those in Jerusalem, but among the millions, if not billions, that are saved on the planet during the tribulation period. Sixth point. These Jews, that is, the Jews that are alive and remain in the land and are believers, will flee to the desert and the mountains around Petra when they see the abomination of desolation. So this takes us back to the chronology of the tribulation period. That during, At the halfway point, that uh, when the abomination of desolation occurs and the Antichrist sets up his idol to be worshipped, sets himself up to be worshipped in the, in the temple, that... At that point, the believers were warned by Jesus in Matthew 24, 14 to 15 to flee. And in Revelation 12, it confirms that the woman flees to the wilderness because of the testimony of Jesus, and they, they follow his orders, and so they, they flee. So that puts us into that chronological period. So the, all these Jews get saved in the tribulation period. Those in the land flee to Petra, where God protects them supernaturally during the second half of the tribulation period. And then under the uh, seventh point, they're, um, 
There needs to be a national cleansing and restoration. This comes at the end in the last two or three days before Jesus returns as a corporate entity. They turn and call upon Jesus, and there will be a period of national cleansing and restoration that takes place for the nation. Uh, remember, they're already saved, but this is a national cleansing and restoration. And uh, it's necessary because God the Son will once again take up his residence in the land and in the millennial temple. And this is when the new covenant uh, gets established. Point number eight, we saw that in the past, Israel could not remain obedient to God. Again and again and again, the writers of the prophets say that you just couldn't be obedient. They couldn't do uh, fulfill the law. They couldn't follow the law. They were disobedient. And so because they had to be obedient in order to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessings of the land covenant, uh, the blessings of the Davidic covenant, God has to do everything for them, including giving them a new mind and a new disposition, and that comes with the giving of the new covenant. So, point number nine, the new covenant will take the place of the Mosaic covenant and will be written in their hearts. And I understand heart there not to be the physical organ, or but to be in their minds, in their souls. So they're, they're, the, the word of God is going to, and doctrine is just going to be implanted in their thinking instead of tablets of stone. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 33, we see the same thing in Ezekiel uh, 36 as well as Ezekiel 37. So, point number 10, God gives them a new ability. He gives them a new heart, and he puts his spirit in them to enable them to fulfill all of these conditions. And we see the references up there. We went through all of those. And so, with that new mind, the every Jew, and this just applies to Jews, not to Gentiles, because in Isaiah chapter 2, when it talks about the fact all the nations will come to worship God, to the mountain of God in Jerusalem, they're coming to learn about God. But Jews won't need to learn about God, according to Jeremiah 30, 31, because God is going to put his word in them, and it's no longer going to be necessary for a man to teach his neighbor. And learning and teaching in Hebrew are cognates of the same basic, same basic word form. Now that brings us to point number 11. As a result, they see when this happens at the end of the tribulation period and the new covenant is established and God gives them a new heart and puts his spirit within them, at this point they will see what they have done throughout their disobedience in the Old Testament, their idolatry, how they continuously, as Jesus points out and at the end of Matthew 23, they put to death all of the prophets they constantly reject God's revelation, constantly hostile to him. They will see all of that all the way up to Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Messiah, sent to them, and they crucify him. They will suddenly see this, and in all of its horror, and they will break down and weep over what they have done. Weep in sorrow. And that's not because that's when they're getting saved, and there are many who say that, but they're already saved. We've seen that in the Scripture. This is now there with this new capacity. They suddenly see the horror of all that they have done, and they, they weep in sorrow. So they have the uh, understanding of that. 
Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will weep in remorse, because they will understand what it is that they have done. Now, the New Covenant will feature tremendous spiritual blessings for the people of Israel, not for the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles get blessing by association, as they have all the way through from Abraham. But the thrust of the New Covenant is to provide these incredible spiritual blessings and to bring to fulfillment at the end of the tribulation all of the promises and all of the covenants that God had given to Israel. Romans chapter uh, 9 verse 3, that the covenants and the promises belong to Israel. And Paul writes that in the church age. They have not been overthrown. They have not been uh, changed. They have not been abrogated because of Israel's disobedience. So the new covenant will feature these great spiritual blessings for the people of Israel. Then in verse 13, the new covenant will, I mean, uh, verse 13, point 13, the new covenant will reveal the glory of God so that it will be no longer necessary to witness to others. Now, this is within Israel. This is the Jewish dimension. There's still the need to witness to the Gentiles. So, in the church age, you have this distinction between church age believers and, and, and unbelievers. Uh, if, if a Jew becomes saved in the church age, he's, he's no longer, uh, his Jewishness isn't a factor. And I have a problem. I'm not an expert on this, but I'm a bit of a problem with the so-called Messianic Jewish movement because there are a number of so-called, there's a number of saved Jews who make an issue out of the fact that they are completed Jews. And as if that makes them somehow different from the Gentiles that get saved. But the emphasis in the scripture is that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or slave, male or female, for we are all one in the body of Christ. Ethnicity, especially Jewish ethnicity, is not an issue in terms of spiritual blessing in the church age because they get their blessing not because they're Jewish, but because of their relationship to Jesus Christ and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But in the millennial kingdom, we go back to a, a, an aspect that is similar to the Old Testament period in that there are, there's Jews and then there's Gentiles. And the Gentiles receive blessing by association only in terms of their faith in the Messiah. Now, there will be saved Gentiles that come out of the tribulation who survive and go into the millennial kingdom, and they will uh, get married and they will have children. And those children will have a sin nature and they'll have volition and they'll have to make decisions as to whether or not they're going to uh, trust in uh, Jesus and if they're going to believe the gospel or not. And that this is why they have to learn about uh, God and learn about Jesus. And this is why all the nations will go to uh, Israel. So if you... Uh, uh, so if they don't make it before then, they will make it to Jerusalem and Israel uh, in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, point 14, we've seen that the New Covenant will feature forgiveness, grace, and blessing. Jeremiah 31, 34, uh, there will, it's forgiveness for the national sins of Israel in terms of both idolatry and the rejection of the Messiah, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When the Pharisees, as the corporate representatives of the nation, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of performing his miracles in the power of Satan. And this is why Jesus makes his statement about, and when he makes his statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something that can be done by people today. It was a historically conditioned sin. And it was a sin of Israel rejecting her Messiah and claiming that he was really the devil. And so that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the result of that was the national discipline in 70 A.D., And there is forgiveness for that, and that forgiveness is applied nationally as part of the New Covenant. And then point 15, in the New Covenant, God promised the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is not part of the spiritual life in the tribulation. And we've looked at passages like Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will put my spirit in you, and Joel 2, 28 to 29, the pouring forth of the of the new spirit at the end of the tribulation. And there's one other passage we really didn't look at in any any kind of detail, and I just want to allude to it very briefly, and it's in Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two. And Second Thessalonians chapter two is one of the great chapters on the Antichrist that we will be getting into in our study of Revelation, because we are first introduced to the person we call the Antichrist in the first seal judgment. The, the rider of the white horse is a depiction of God's uh, revealing the uh, Antichrist and uh, enabling him to take power. When you get into Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there is there's an interesting... Um, chronology that's given, one of the things that occurs is that we read in verse 3 of 2 Thess 2, 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, which is the day of the Lord, will not come unless, and then most English translations translate this word, the falling away. And the word that is used there for the falling away is the Greek word apostasia, which is often understood to be apostasy. That's why they translate it uh, falling away. Except the core semantic meaning for apostasia means to depart. It refers to a departure when it's applied to doctrine. It is the departure from truth, i.e. apostasy. But it's used in other examples, for example, of a ship departing from port and other places. And so it has been argued by numerous scholars that the more accurate interpretation or translation here should be, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the departure comes first. See, if it's falling away that must come first, then we have a sign of the rapture that uh, there must be a great end times apostasy before the Lord can come back at the rapture. And that would violate the doctrine of imminency. But we have the departure coming first, and that departure is the departure of the church, which is the rapture. So the departure comes first, and then the man of sin is revealed. So you and I may see someone who will become the Antichrist, but we won't know it because he won't be revealed as such until after the departure takes place, which is the rapture. And the man of sin, which is just another title of the Antichrist, is one who opposes and exalts himself about all that is called God and is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember, Paul says, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
And now you know what is restraining, key word, what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time, that he may be revealed is talking about the revealing of the Antichrist. For the mystery, Paul says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And the one who now restrains is the Holy Spirit. He is the restrainer of evil. And as long as the church age is here, as long as church age believers are on the planet, there's the presence of the Holy Spirit who is restraining evil and holding things back until he's taken out of the way. But once he is, the restrainer is removed, once the Holy Spirit is removed because of the rapture, when the rapture occurs, the believers who are here in the tribulation period won't be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, won't be baptized by the Holy Spirit, because that's a characteristic of the church age. They're not going to be in Christ because there's no baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's no filling of the Holy Spirit. It goes back to an Old Testament type of dynamic in relationship to the Holy Spirit so that uh, tribulation believers don't have the Holy Spirit. And that is why there is this remarkable transformation that will take place at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus returns and the Holy Spirit is poured out on Israel, they will, that's part of why they have such a sudden realization of what they have done, is because they, they will receive the Holy Spirit and he will make these things very clear to them instantaneously. So uh, in the New Covenant pr- promises a future indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's not part of the spiritual life of the tribulation It will be part of the spiritual life of the millennium and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the millennial kingdom are going to be greater than they are in the spiritual life of the church age believer. Uh, Point number 16. We saw that the covenant includes a promise that Israel will obey God and have a right attitude toward him forever. All Israel will be saved. Now, some people raise, I think, a legitimate question saying, well, what about their volition? Well, I can't answer that, but I can make it clear that again and again and again and again and again and again, as we've seen in Scripture, that God says that he's going to implant this new life and implant a, uh, an irreversible obedience among Israelites. And so all Israel will be saved, and that is part of his uh, teaching in the, uh, in the Millennial Kingdom. Then point number 17 I only have 18 points, so we're almost there. The New Covenant includes a rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and a rebuilt temple. Now, the the third temple will be the Tribulation Temple, and that is an apostate temple. First temple is the Solomonic Temple, which we're studying about in our study of 1 Kings with the dedication of the Solomonic Temple. The second temple is the post-exilic temple. It really has two stages, but it's all referred to as the second temple period. It is initially rebuilt by Zerubbabel. This is described in uh, the book of Ezra, and it's also dealt with to some degree in the book of, uh, of uh, uh, Zechariah. I mean, Haggai. Haggai? Yeah, I think it's Haggai. Uh, it's dealt with there, and it is the, the rebuilding of the, that second temple. It is very modest during the, that period of time until Herod comes along and decides that he wants to 
build and, and re, redo the temple and make it greater than the temple under Solomon. And that was the temple that was still under construction during Jesus' ministry, and it wasn't completed until, uh, uh, in the, I think, in the mid-40s. I'm not sure of the exact date, but it's around uh, 45 to 50 uh, A.D. So the, the New Covenant will include a rebuilding of the city and the fourth temple, which is the Millennial Temple. And then point number 18, when the New Covenant is fulfilled, Israel will not only be in the land as a regenerate people with a new temple, but will also receive the full blessings of the Davidic Covenant. And the, uh, the and David, we saw, would rule over them as their prince forever. So that pulls it all together. All these That summarizes the New Covenant, all the teachings in the Old Testament, that this is very, very Jewish in its orientation. And there's nothing, not one thing in Hebrews chapter 8 to indicate that it is anything other than this particular Jewish covenant. And that it is that old covenant, that, um, excuse me, that new covenant which comes into effect that is a sta- that, that the sacrifice that establishes it. It doesn't go into effect until Jesus comes back, but the sacrifice that, that establishes it is that work of Christ on the cross, and this is what becomes clear in the statements of Jesus in the upper room in Luke 22.20, when he says in the Passover meal, as he's redefining the elements, he says, and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All you can get from that verse is that his death on the cross is establishing, is laying the foundation, you might say, uh, laying the foundation for his uh, new covenant, for the new covenant that is is in his blood. Uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.25 is when Paul's explanation of this to uh, the Corinthians, and he quotes from the Luke passage. He says, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so there is a, that's, that's two of the references in the New Testament to the new covenant. Now, in Matthew 26, 28, that's Matthew 26, 28, and Mark 14, 24, those are the parallel uh, synoptic gospel passages for the Lord's table. The statement is recorded in a little bit different form. In that, those two accounts, the statement is recorded, this is my blood of the new covenant. Now, remember, I pointed out on Sunday morning that sometimes in the reading of the Gospels in parallel passages, you will read a and it looks like a discrepancy. Well, did he say this? Uh, this is my blood, which is given for you. Did he say this cup is the new covenant in my blood, or did he say this is my blood of the new covenant? Which did he say? Well, he could have said both. See that Jesus didn't say everything just in these quick little sentences. You see the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And you see the same sermon given in Luke, but there he's given it on the plane. And there's differences. And it's just like you've heard me give the doctrine of eternal security, let's say, and 
uh, eight or ten different series. And every time you hear it, it may be 90% the same and 10% different. And Jesus did the same thing. He didn't just teach one thing one time. He taught one thing many times, many places. And so the writers of Scripture would draw from perhaps different uh, times when he taught it. So these aren't contradictions. They are uh, sometimes Jesus said five sentences, and when, the, when he's quoted by one author, they quote two of the sentences, and then the other author quotes another two sentences. Because Jesus used a lot of repetition, which any good teacher which any good teacher would do. So in the Matthew passage and the Mark passage, the emphasis is placed on the soteriological aspects of the covenant. This is in, in just the structure of the sentence. This is my blood of the new covenant, emphasizing that soteriological aspect necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Whereas in the Luke 22 passage and the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, the, there's an emphasis on the eschatological or the prophetic part of it. Because remember, before this, Jesus says, I won't drink the fruit of the vine again with you until I come in my kingdom. So he's saying that as he drinks this cup, he, the next time he drinks wine, drinks the cup with his disciples, it will be when the kingdom is established. And so there is that prophetic aspect to it that causes us to not only the Matthew passages cause us to look back to the cross when the covenant is established, the Luke and the the Luke quotation and the uh, Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 11 force us to think in terms of a future fulfillment of that new covenant. Same thing that happened with the Exodus. The Exodus event was a memorial to God's deliverance in the past in 1446 B.C., but at the same time, the elements, the Passover lamb, the uh, unleavened bread, those elements looked forward to and were uh, types of the future lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So there's a past and a future element to the Passover and a past and a future element to the, to the new covenant. And so the new covenant was understood there to be a, a future fulfillment. Now, the next passage that people go to that seems to be the one that everybody has trouble with is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. So why don't you just turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll pick up the context. We wouldn't want to be guilty of taking the text out of the context and being left with the con job. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians has to deal with this attack on his personal credentials and his, his apostolic uh, ministry that he is a true, genuine apostle. And he says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? And I remind you, I talked about this several weeks ago in when I looked at Second uh, Corinthians uh, 12 and the thorn of the flesh, that this was, a, uh, there you have the use of the word boasting about, I don't know, 12 or 13, 14 times. Uh, it's heavy usage in those two chapters because Paul finally is going to give some, some uh, credentials. 
But the reason he's pressured into that is because these Judaizers, these false teachers are following him around, and they're saying, look at all that we've done. We've had all these miracles, and we've had these signs and wonders, and you know that establishes us, and we've done this and we've done that, and so you need to follow us. What has Paul done? He doesn't have any letters of commendation. He doesn't have... Look, where, where did he go to seminary? Where's his resume? That's essentially what they're asking. And Paul never never focused on what he had done or what he had accomplished because he made the focus Jesus Christ and the cross. So he that's what he's referring to here. He says, we don't, I don't need to commend uh, myself or my ministry. That's not the focal point. He says, if you want validation, look at the, the ministry the effect of my ministry in your life. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on the tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers or servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so he talks about the fact that he is a minister of the new covenant. And then he goes on to talk about this in the subsequent verses. But the point that he is making is that as an apostle, what he is doing is applying to the, those who become believers in this age the gospel that comes from the sacrifice that is made on the cross. That sacrifice is what is the basis for the new covenant. The new covenant is established and enacted with Israel. By virtue of that covenant, though, there is blessing by association to Gentiles and to all the world. That's what God had promised to Abraham, that all the world would be blessed through him. And so that blessing comes through Christ, who is the other party of the new covenant, and we, the church-age believers, are in him, and by virtue of our position in him and relationship to him, we partake of certain new covenant blessings. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews does. So let's turn as we get ready to get back into our study of Hebrews 8 proper. Let's go back and just connect this very quickly. In the first part of Hebrews chapter 8, Paul said, I mean, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, it wasn't Paul. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And he's made the point in chapter 7 that when there's a change in priesthood, there's a change in covenant. The covenant is the legal structure that establishes the spiritual life aspects of a particular uh, dispensation. And so what the writer has been arguing is that the priesthood related to uh, the old covenant was related to a physical qualification being genetically related to Aaron and being a Levitical priest. But that priesthood was limited in time because the covenant, the old covenant was limited in time and there had to be a new covenant 
that would establish a new priesthood, a Melchizedekian-based high priesthood, and that is the basis for Jesus Christ's high priestly ministry. And so he is a high priest based on the new covenant, and we as church-age believers have a priesthood. Our believer priesthood is related to Jesus Christ's high priesthood. So that's how we connect to the new covenant, not because there's a new covenant with the church, but because the church-age believers have a unique position in Christ. And in him, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, we have been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in heaven. And so this is connected not to a direct covenant with us, but in terms of our position being in Christ. And then back in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, we read, But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And this brings up, for his thinking, the, 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 the fact that what this new covenant, and that this new covenant is what's in effect, and leads him to quote, from Jeremiah 31, and his whole point is simply to show that new covenant implies that the old covenant was temporary. Now we look at verse 8, and and, uh, verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, and it wasn't, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, and then that begins the quote at the beginning of verse 8. And this is the quote, from Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 to 34. And if you look in your Bible, in my Bible, the quotations from the Old Testament are in italics. And so Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is quoted verbatim, word for word, all the way down through verse 12. And we've already covered all of that in our study of Jeremiah 31, 31. So the writer of Hebrews quotes the whole all four verses from the Old Testament. Then he makes his point. Now notice what he does in verse 13. He says, in that he says a new covenant. He doesn't exegete anything else in the passage. He says, in that he calls it a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That's all he's saying. He's not saying that anything else in that passage applies. He's saying the only thing I want you to pay attention to is that he calls it a new covenant, and the terminology new means that the covenant it replaces was never intended to be permanent. Because he calls it a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old, the whole Levitical priesthood, the whole temple ministry, all of that, what is uh, becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. When's it going to vanish away? When the temple's destroyed in 70 A.D., which is just uh, a short time from when this is written. This is written in the early 60s, probably. So that pulls all this together on the New Covenant, and this establishes our foundation from the Old Testament to understand why he's going to go into the things he's going to go into in chapter 9, And the first thing he's going to start with is dealing with the tabernacle. So we will be uh, taking the next several months to go back through Exodus, Leviticus, dealing with the tabernacle, dealing with the sacrifices, the offerings, all of those things, 
to understand that so we can at least appreciate what it is that the writer of Hebrews is saying to these former Levitical priests who are now believers and the implication of those things. So that concludes our diversion into the New Covenant in preparation for uh, our exposition and development of Hebrews chapter 9. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to realize in a greater way the significance of our, the new covenant that's established with Israel and Judah, the new covenant that was uh, the sacrifice for which was made at the cross and is the basis for the blessings that we have today in Christ, in Christ who is our Savior and our High Priest, and which is the basis for our uh, priestly ministry and our role as church-age believers both today and our future role as priests and kings serving with him in the future millennial kingdom. We pray that you would challenge us with these things that we've studied. In Christ's name, amen.